0: Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we welcome Curtis Watkins, who's the CEO of Bova Metrics to the Charlotte Angel Connection. Curtis joined Boba Metrics in September 2017 um, to help drive the company's growth as it moves from kind of the early stages of development into beta mode and then out from beta mode into the general public. So, Boba Metrics is a, a young fintech company here in Charlotte. It targets wealth managers with an augmented intelligence solution so essentially it's it was developed as a proprietary model designed to capture opportunities and add value to a client's existing portfolio in essence it allows an advisor's knowledge to be merged with an artificial intelligence platform for managing portfolios So, pretty cool little concept um, it was written about in start charlotte a couple weeks ago as well so they're getting some publicity they're getting some traction they're getting some help they've got td ameritrade backing them, um, and they've got uh, they've got some interest as far as the beta test goes. So, they're moving in that direction. Again, it's a young fintech-type company, which is, you know, obviously a direction that Charlotte's trying to go. For our podcast today, I wanted to cover just some basic things with Curtis. Um, one of the things that we learn more and more every day is how important the team is. So, I wanted to get a kind of a background on who Curtis is, what brought him to where he was today. Uh, why did that attract Bova Metrics to him? Um, he's got some past experience as a startup guy as well as being with Duke. So I wanted to learn what he, wanted to figure out what he learned from being a startup person previously and what he learned from being with Duke in an innovation type environment. I wanted to learn the history of Bova Metrics, um, how they are starting to acquire customers. And then Curtis was, his first startup experience dated back to 2001, 2002. And obviously in technology, a lot's changed since then. So the other thing that I really wanted to dive into for today was to just talk with them about what's the difference between starting a company then versus starting it today. Um, So interesting conversation, really enjoyed it. Hopefully you'll enjoy this part one and we'll stick around for part two next week as well. So thanks so much. So, Curtis, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. So, excited to have you on for the next 25-30 uh, minutes and then for episode 2 following us um, shortly thereafter. So, Curtis, you've got a, um, you know, like everybody, you've got a background that brought you to where you are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, that background is a story that would kind of help us over the course of the next 50 minutes here as we talk back and forth. So, Give us a give us a quick commercial of how how you landed up in the seat that you're in. Uh, probably more boba metrics, not necessarily the seat here at Packer Place.
1: Sure, absolutely, glad to do it. Well, I very first thing I did, I graduated from college in 2001, and when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was up in Richmond. Decided I wanted to move back to Charlotte, have family down here. My brother at the time was, you know, he was building a startup out of his house, classic sort of garage scenario. And uh, he was building mobile software solutions for municipalities. Sounds pretty exciting, right? Hot. And uh, he said to me at the time, "Look, you know, here's an opportunity to be part of an uh, early part of a company." I didn't know much about you know startup world, and it wasn't like it is today, where there was a lot of information out there about it. The web was fairly new to most people, and especially on your phone. And um, so I said, "Well, you know, this would be an interesting challenge." And so I got on board, and that was the very first startup I did. We started out of his house. We were able to get some venture capital funding here in Charlotte. We did some programming through the Vint Craig Center, which is now Ventureprise. Mm-hmm. We were able to find uh, funding through that process, and uh, we built up the company, and eventually that company sold uh, in 2007. And from there, I decided I wanted a little bit of corporate America experience, and so I found my way to Duke Energy, and ultimately ended up in their emerging technology office, which is a an organization within the group that looks at new technologies anywhere from two to five years to five to ten and ten plus years beyond uh, that would be useful for the utility. And we got to do some really cool stuff. I saw uh, wireless charging for electric vehicles using inductive chargers. I saw uh, algae that could eat carbon that you could use at a, uh, at a coal facility in order to reduce your carbon emissions. Uh, smart appliances, so on and so forth. And um, while I was there, I was able to actually set up CLT Jewels because I had kind of missed my connection to the entrepreneurial community. And at the time, in 2010, 2011, Charlotte was really pushing on the idea of becoming a more um, entrepreneurial-friendly city. And uh, Packard Place was just starting to get established. There were a lot of things that were pretty exciting at the time. And I felt one of the ways I could get back to the entrepreneurial community and stay engaged and stay in touch with them was to set up a, a program for energy entrepreneurs. And uh, I was able to uh, work with Dan Roselli here at Packard Place to uh, set up the first instance of, uh, of the energy incubator got uh, Duke energy to fund it and through that process um, you know continue to stay involved and engaged and learn about startups and um, I think it's a great way for anybody who's thinking about you know, how can I get involved if they're not an entrepreneur if they you know love the idea but aren't sure what to do and they're in corporate America or someplace where they feel like they could give something uh, incubator programs are a great place for uh, mentors and coaches and people to, to come in and help people building a business uh, learn about different aspects of their business that uh, they may not be able to know otherwise. Um, so I did that for a few years, and then I decided to break the corporate handcuffs and uh, get back into the entrepreneurial world in 2015. Uh, found my way to a company that was doing um, hydrokinetic units. They are basically hydropower units that are the size of an SUV that you could drop into man-made waterways and canals. And it had a proprietary cycloidal magnetic gearbox attached to the top that would allow you to increase the efficiency and not spill stuff into the water because this water was for drinking. And uh, that was based in Atlanta. Spent about a year and a half there as the chief operating officer and a partner in that company. Um, And then decided I wanted to be back in Charlotte. And uh, so I came back. And turns out that my brother, who I'd started the company with, had kept up with one of the... Uh, one of his former co-workers from the early 90s Uh, and he had kept up with the founder of the company where my brother had been and they were telling him about this new solution they were building that was this algorithm that could boost performance on portfolios and they said we've got this algorithm, it works, we've researched it, we've tested it, we've uh, put it against live portfolios, we know the technology is good, the algorithm is good. Uh, we don't know how to build a company and we are, you know, not really in the startup scene. And so my brother said, well, you should talk to Curtis. He's definitely involved. He's been doing a lot of startup stuff. So I met with the guys and especially the, the original founder and the guy who built the algorithm and had a great conversation, loved what they were doing. And lo and behold, uh, found an opportunity to come in and, and run the company. That's cool. So
0: go back for a few minutes to your days with Duke. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, a Fortune 500 type company, um, but at the same time, it's utility, right? Um, and utilities aren't necessarily known for uh, being super innovative, forward-thinking type entities. Mm-hmm. How much of it? I mean, but you you done it, right? From 2001 to 2007, you'd been part of a startup. You tested ideas. You tested markets. Um, you brought something to life, you got rid of it, sold it, and I got rid of it. Um, and then you go work for a company that's not known for innovation. Um, how much of a transition was that? Yeah.
1: It, was, it was definitely a transition. And actually, what was interesting about the group um, that I was in, Emerging Tech, it came about after the combination between um, Duke Power and Synergy, when they created Duke Energy, mm-hmm. after that merger... Jim Rogers was the CEO, and he brought over David Moeller as his chief technical officer. Um, One of the reasons I got added to the team is because of the entrepreneurial experience. And they were looking for different skill sets and different thinking at the time than what they traditionally had in the utility. Um, So we were able to to sort of branch off away from the day-to-day typical utility operations, the idea of this regulated utility that sits in front of the commission and does all these different things in order to get a you know, a simple program uh, approved and passed or a, a rate increase, or whatever it is they normally do. And uh, the idea was that, you know, we could partner with you know, companies in Japan and China. We could do a lot of different things that utilities hadn't traditionally been doing in order to help deploy these new technologies. Um, so we were, we were an isolated group, but it was difficult because, you know, you can only get so far with pilots and programs and testing of technology before you have to get it into a business unit. And that business unit has to be able to fold it into the traditional utility model, which is rate basing assets and doing all these other things that just take time. Yeah. And um, you know, regulators aren't really all that interested in thinking about uh, new technologies. They want you to deliver electricity. They want you to do it reliably. They want you to do it cheap. And new technology, although it does a lot of great things, may not necessarily fit that mold. Yeah. And so we faced a lot of challenges. I think that was the biggest hurdle we faced was transition, the technology transfer, taking a successful pilot, we were able to put this new technology into place and it did something spectacular and fun and interesting, try to hand it over to somebody in the business unit and they would say, yeah, but I don't know how to get this thing approved or put out or what we would do next. And so we faced a lot of those early challenges. I think today uh, what's ended up happening within, within the utility is there's been a stronger focus on some more core areas they think are a little bit more... Um, palatable and a little more scalable within a utility, so you see things like communication protocols and standards. So maybe the idea now is not so much that the utility is leading the charge um, to put out new sensors out on the lines, or um, you know have all these communications happening with smart meters. Maybe they don't drive the technology, but they drive the communication protocols between them
0: all. Okay.
1: And so they found a, a way to say, you know, there's a way that we can facilitate and use our size and our strength to get these vendors who are in different businesses who may possibly even compete in certain ways, have them connect through the idea they all want to do business with us. Mm-hmm. And that's how he, they started to use their muscle. It was, a, it was a pretty brilliant move in order to sort of move the industry in a certain direction. Um, and there's been a lot of good focus for them that. And, and, and what, what I think they'll find is that by building on some of that success and proving that the innovation is not just a fun or a cool or a new sexy way to do something, that actually has proven um, benefits within the industry and for the utility, that they're able to take that and, and turn it into a, a, a launching point for more innovative endeavors, like drones.
0: Yeah, like drones. <laughs> yeah. What, um, so you, um, so you worked for, for a small startup, you worked for a big company, and now you've worked for several startups post. What do you learn from working in a Duke that you can, so you took some key knowledge, I mean, Duke wanted you to be part of them um, because they needed the innovation expertise or innovation experience that you had. Um, but now you've kind of flipped the script a little bit, right? You went and worked in a big company and what can you take from that and then apply back down to the startup type companies specifically as you start working with um, or not start, but now that you've been with your new startup for about a year now, I, I think one of the biggest things that
1: I learned through that process And it's one of the main reasons I was um, interested in starting CLT Tools, is that you really need to understand how that customer that you're trying to attract. If you're a small business, you've got a product, you've got a technology, you've got a service, and you're looking to sell it into a large utility or a large bank or whoever it may be, you really need to have a firm grasp and understanding of how they do business. Not just what you're trying to sell to them and what pain point you're solving, but how they do it. Um, and you need to craft a message that actually fits that. I think one of the biggest problems I saw for technology uh, coming into Duke was we'd have these vendors who had something innovative and cool, and they had no idea how the utility made money. Um, they didn't know about you know how rate cases were created. They didn't know about you know the commission. They didn't know about the legislative bodies and what happens if you're a regulated monopoly and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. And because they didn't understand that, they had the wrong message.
2: And the reality is, you don't
1: get a whole lot of chances. Yeah. Uh, to get past the first discussion inside of a large entity because everybody in the world is trying to get into the, to those companies. And so you have to come in and you have to, you have to nail it right off the bat and you have to understand how they're doing things. You have to do your research um, incubators and programs that have uh, specific mentors from those industries are great because they can give you that insight. Yeah. Um, but do your research and understand, okay, this is how these guys, this is how they conduct business. This is how they make money. Let me make sure my discussion, my initial talking points with these guys fit exactly what they do. And while you would like to think that you know, they'd be able to see past your, um, your lack of understanding of how they do things, they often won't, yep. and you're just going to miss that opportunity. So make sure your, your message is very tailored for what they're doing.
0: Okay. Um, speaking of message, let's pivot for a second and talk about um, current companies. So mm-hmm. um, it is an AI-powered um, investment tool. Talk a little bit about it. What, um, you know, How did it come to be? Um, where did you come on board? And, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there for, with some more questions. So how did it come to be and when did you come on board?
1: Sure. So uh, what we've developed is a solution called Aquila. It's, a, it's an AI platform designed for wealth managers. It's an algorithm that they run against their long-term portfolios, and it'll boost the returns uh, in those portfolios anywhere from 25 to 7%. And it came into creation was the.
0: Annualized. Yes. Your back testing will show 25 to 7% annualized improvements, correct? Correct. Okay, not just, I didn't want people to get not total return, annualized return. Yep. Yep.
1: And so what what ended up happening was the, the guy that wrote our algorithm, Bob Van Art, um he was an entrepreneur uh, from the 80s and 90s. And he developed one of the first 401k software record keeping companies in the nation. And he ended up selling that company in 1995 to Charles Schwab. And after he sold his company, and he had himself at a very nice exit, he invested his money with wealth advisors, and he put it in with a a couple of guys in a company, and said, "Okay, guys, you manage my money now. Just make sure I'm comfortable for the rest of my life and all that good stuff." And uh, that worked fine for a while. Um, And then he, you know, around 2013, he was watching the market, seeing all these things happening, and. It was a great market, and he was thinking, you know, I'm doing okay, but I'm not doing great. And um, he wanted to know why. And so he started looking into how his portfolios were being managed and what the guys were doing with his money. And ultimately, what he came to was this you know, determination that the guys were putting him into certain funds, and they were kind of you know, doing this passive approach to let the funds appreciate over time, and that was where he was getting his returns in the portfolio. And he said, you know, that's fine, but I think we could do better. And he said, I bet I could do something to make it better. So he decided to do some research and looking into, is there a more active approach that could be put into the portfolios? Um, So he started doing the research. He went all the way back to Markowitz and he was looking at, you know, modern portfolio theory and all Mm -hmm. these other, other things that were out there. And ultimately, he came across this concept of essentially taking the idea of managing risk and said, I want to manage reward, and so he sort of flipped the paradigm and um, took the mirror opposite of managing risk and put it into managing reward and he developed this algorithm and he started running it. And he went through many different iterations, he did a couple of years of um, you know, that research and development and testing and ultimately he finally got the, the right formula, the secret sauce and figured it all out and um, it worked and he ran over 10,000 simulations of this to be able to go back and back test and see the performance, and what we end up doing is we'll run uh, a comparison test of a portfolio where we take a static portfolio and a start date, and we'll take that exact same portfolio and we'll apply Aquila to it, and we'll run it over five years through our simulator, and we'll be able to show at the end of five years this is what you would look like uh, if you'd just been running your portfolio in standard accumulation. But if you have been running with Aquila, you have that appreciation uh, and accumulation put together, we would have better results. And that's the way that we were able to sort of verify how this is being done. So we don't compare against you know the Dow or the S&P or anything because it's not really a good benchmark for us. Our benchmark is how would you have done if you just said, let this portfolio sit versus how would you have done if that portfolio had been running a call. And ultimately, once he got it all right, he said, this is great. I have this algorithm. It does what it's supposed to do. It's Wealth advisors saw what he was doing, and uh, they were able to take a look at it and give him advice and you know input along the way. And they said, "Yeah, this is this is a good tool. Our industry could use this." Um, when he got to that point, though, he realized, "Look, you know, I haven't been in the business world in over 20 years. Uh, I don't have a network of people who can do things like you know build a company." Um, and he's really interested in the technology and the product, right? It's it's algorithms, it's statistics, it's you know typical. You know, get behind a keyboard and make sure I'm doing product development, support, and that sort of thing. And he said, I want somebody to run the company. So when I got introduced into that conversation, we were talking about, you know, what does it take to, to start a company? Well, you got to go out and you got to raise some money. You got to be out in these networks. You got to be having these conversations. You have to be thinking about your first strategic partnership. You know, all these other things that we had in our initial discussions ultimately turned into a, a Curtis, um, you know, we, we like what your knowledge and experience brings to the table. Uh, we like that, uh, you know, you could take this thing and, and hopefully lead us in the right direction. And so I came on in the summer of uh, 2017. Okay. And we started to uh, build out the first iterations of a company from there. Yeah. So
0: um, you have a CFA, um, Chartered Financial Analyst. You've got 15 years of experience in um, in, in background finance, and finance. And I'm kidding, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, but you do have experience, I man. again... Um, mobile platform um, energy um, why why you um, and I get it but I mean I understand but what's the what's the gearbox for the next 12 or uh, for the next 12 months as you continue to launch it forward
1: yeah so I you know for me I think bringing to the table you know experience that's sort of varied in background right yeah. energy technologies and mobile solutions and, and IT and software that sort of thing I think you know, what you're looking for at this point in the company is the ability to you know get your message right. Yeah. Get the crafting of that message, be able to articulate what you're doing and I think we're still doing that. I mean, it's a very complex solution that we're building and we've you know, talked about this offline. I mean, it's, it's difficult to explain what you're doing to someone um, and you know we're trying to take this very complex algorithm that's advanced and augmented intelligence and all these things and package it up into a sentence or two that can communicate clearly what we're doing but then translate that into conversations with investors, with advisors, with potential customers, with pilot uh, customers, that sort of thing. And you know, there are skill sets that are um, usable across all industries and communications, uh, the ability to you know, see and articulate a vision, to come up with a strategy, to build a coalition around your company, to bring in people who are you know, talented and excited and interested in what you're doing. Um, the understanding of, you know, simple concepts in every uh, startup, like a cap table, you yeah. know, and, and all these things are, you know, they're important uh, attributes in, in being able to just build an entire company around it. At some points, you know, you may find yourself that, you know, you spend the next five years, you've built it to the right point, and maybe there's a better skill set to come in and take it to that next level, yep. you know, and you got to understand that, and, it, you know, change is inevitable, and it will happen. Um, not everybody gets to stick around for, you know, the entire ride or for 10 years or whatever it is, but... Um, at this point in time, I think I was a good fit where, you know, my skill set to be able to come in after the, I'm not going to be the kind of guy that sits back and writes a lot of code and does the algorithm research and development. And that's not my interest nor is it my skill set. Yep. But now that the product is there, it's a matter of turning that in, or at least the intelligence and the core piece of it, the algorithm, now it's connecting all the pieces. I'm really good at connecting the pieces. And I think... Whether I was doing that in energy or whether I was doing that in a mobile software solution company, the idea of connecting those pieces is where I really excel in, in fostering those conversations and those relationships. And so that skill set, you know, that's applicable in a lot of different areas.
0: So you've got, um, you've got a product, you tested it, you back tested it, you've been on board now, you're working on messaging. The lifeblood of a company is, is, is customers. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a new concept. How do you go out and find customers? Um, do you cold call? Do you uh, um, do you fire up a Twitter account? Um, do you carry your pigeon and drop stuff on, in parking lots? What what do you do at this stage in this industry?
1: I hadn't thought about the pigeon idea, but I kind of like that. Yeah, you know, go a little old school. Yeah, that's know? right. Everybody wants to be high tech. Let's go old school. Um, very Game of Thrones. Now I you know we what we've decided to do. Okay, so I think something that's important. Um, for an early stage company that has limited resources is this idea or this ability of focus Yeah. you know what is and nothing's more important than distribution at the end of the day if you can't get your product out there it doesn't matter what you do so distribution is key and so we've we've developed a strategy that's very focused on the idea that we want one platform and it it may be just the start and that may change in a year or two Mm -hmm. Um, but we have one platform we're focused on to do the integration it's with TD Ameritrade they have a service available to third party vendors, they wanna be a marketplace for our target clients, the, the the wealth advisors, they have a marketplace where you can find new tools. And so, we're in the midst of this integration, we've done um, early stage testing with them, we've done some pilot work with them, we, we know we can do this and now so we're building in the hooks to be able to completely deploy on that platform, um, so number one, having a strategic focus and not being distracted by too many shiny objects. Yep. And we're very, very, um, Very very strong in that regard, and we're going to stick to that, and we believe in that, and that's our first step. The second step is okay. Now that we know what our platform is going to be, where are the users there?
2: And we know that there are over six thousand RIAs that
1: are on the TD Ameritrade platform, and so we have information about total assets under management, you know, that sort of thing. But ultimately, we got to get to the ones that are out there using it. So what what we have there's a there's a toolkit um, that is a database for RIAs. And not only does it give you access to who these people are and where they work and the size of their firm and their contact information and so on and so forth, but it actually gets detailed information right down to what platform we're using. Okay. So I can filter out everybody else who's using some other tool or some other group and just look at the guys that are using TD Ameritrade. Yep. So I build the integration, have a focused and targeted effort to the folks that are on that platform, and we just start to go after those folks. And that is an outreach, you know, and, and I think – I've had some good conversations with some people who, you know, maybe coming in on the sales side for us that have been in this space and have sold it in the industry. And you know, there's a combination of things that you can do out there, uh, but ultimately, that direct access to them and knowing that that are on that platform um, is the key to our first customers. Okay.
0: Um, how long do you build out? So these first customers, they'll be beta customers for the most part. It's or, okay. Yeah. How long do you run a beta customer platform for some part of this, Curtis?
1: For us, I, I think 12 months is probably about the shelf life we'd want to be on that. Okay. Um, you know, give or take a little bit. Uh, ultimately, where we finish with this, you know, little bit of money that we just raised in this pre seed round that's going almost solely for the integration and acquisition of customers on this platform, um, that'll get us a core group of those customers that we're going to run for a little while, kind of make sure process works, make sure there's no major kinks or anything that we're, we're missing in the overall development of our solution and the integration. But on um, in parallel to that, um, we need to be thinking about the larger, more sophisticated version of our platform. Um, so we've got to build that out, got to make that work. Um, I think we could run these customers for a year. The good news is because we're going after people that are running long-term portfolios. We're not talking about high-frequency traders and people that are doing things on- you know, a minute by minute or a second by second basis. Yeah. We're talking about people that are holding this money for the long term, uh, and that are going to be patient with the money. And for us, getting to year three and beyond is our benchmark anyway. Yeah, we have to get to that year three to really start to to see the full benefits of the algorithm starting to hit the portfolio. Um, you know, we're we're in that we're in a patient group, I think, um, and we have to be very careful and hold a lot of hands. Uh, with those first customers, especially through that first year, because you know it's easy to get caught up in the idea that I'm going to run an algorithm against this portfolio, it's going to boost my performance, and then six months you look at it and say, Well, this doesn't look all that great. Yeah, well, it takes time, so we want to be there along the way, we want to walk them through this journey. But as they start to see it and start to understand it, I think you know that'll happen, and um, we'll make sure that they understand everything throughout that process.
0: Yeah, now that makes sense. Um, how different. Is it from your first startup in that regards? As far as um, as far as that beta testing, messaging, tweaking, is the is the I mean, obviously, it's not the exact same, but is yeah. the formula pretty consistent?
1: Uh, to a certain extent, although the industry has changed so much since then, right? And, yeah. You know, in two thousand and one, uh, when you're starting a, a an IT a software company. Um, you have so many other things that you had to build. At the time, there was no idea of the cloud, Yeah. right? And you were building out large development teams, and you had hardware people, and you had your own server room and racks and all this kind of stuff. Like, the, the process to even get something deployed was so laborious and so capital-intensive. Um, today, you know, if we were building what we had built back then, I could do it with a room full of, you know, three or four guys and get it knocked out in, you know, a month or two, right? Mm-hmm notwithstanding the back-end integrations we had to do with the municipality and all their different backend systems I think you know the difference is where we are today in architecture and the ability to you know deploy things out on Amazon uh, in, in their cloud or or Azure or whatever the platform we want to use be able to put our central solution out there where it's available and accessible we use apis to get to whatever you know vendors we need to get to um, but these are all pretty well understood. I'm, I'm able to find talent to do this. I'm able to find. Actually, the, the hard part is that they're in such demand for these uh, types of solutions that you know it's not that the skill set doesn't exist; it's that there's just not enough people out there. Uh, so you know, it, it's it's different, and and it's a lot less capital intensive. And I'm excited about doing that now versus how we did things back in two thousand and one. And we ultimately, um, you know. We were dealing with such custom implementations at a give, any given time in our first startup here everything is going to be very structured uh, around our central solution and we're able to you know build in the hooks to our specific vendors but it's a different process it's just a different world and uh, I think that makes a big difference for us
0: uh, it makes it exciting I guess it makes it slightly, it makes it a different challenge than what you experienced last time right
1: it does yeah it does make it a different challenge um, but in a better way. I think this is, it's 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 a lot better to be doing a startup in you know twenty eighteen than it was in two thousand and one.
0: I would assume and it makes you a lot more nimble. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, just because yeah. you can test something a lot quicker than you could have back then.
1: We're a lot more agile. Um, we're going to be a lot more lean than we were back then, um, and I think ultimately we're going to have better margins because of that. Too. How does
0: um, and we'll start to wrap up on this question. Um, but what do you have to watch out for if you can be that nimble compared to what you were in 2001, 2002? What's the benefit of not being able to be nimble versus the, um, you know, being where you are today?
1: Well, I, I think there's the aspect where you could be, um, let's say, too, when you say too nimble this idea that I could outsource so much of my stuff. Like, yeah. we're doing some fractional help because I think that's important at this stage of the company, so you know we'll, we'll bring in some assistance and some subject matter expertise, but um, at the end of the day, you also want your core technology to be managed and, and looked over by somebody who's gonna be there throughout the process of building out this company. And so you have to be careful not to go too far on the outsource side of things. Yeah, I could find somebody in you know another country who could build this for me and do it pretty cheap mm-hmm. bringing somebody on board, but that person's not gonna be there when I need them. Yeah. And they're not gonna be thinking about version two and version three of the next products. And so you have to be, you know, that was one thing that we had internally in our first startup was this core group of people who I'm still friends with today. Yeah. And we talk on a regular basis. And in fact, I'm probably gonna bring some of them on board if I can. Yeah. Um, but ultimately they, they, they were there and we knew what we were doing at any given time. So we, we, we kept an eye on our strategy and our architecture and everything else. So we have to be careful to do that here too, not get lost in the idea that we'll just throw it out in the cloud and everything's great. Yeah, and, You know, we'll just get other people to take care
0: of it. Yeah, that's cool. So uh, let's wrap up there um, for first segment. Um, we'll come back home for next week. Um, some of the specific things I want to talk about um, for um, for next week, I want to run into fundraising because um, I mean, you're a startup, you need capital, right? Not only do you need customers, but obviously capital. Um, we're sitting here on a podcast and you're blabbing ray about your story. So how concerned are you about somebody stealing concept, idea, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, how is it being a Charlotte startup? Um, so we'll run into some things like that and pivot into a couple other conversations as well. So, um, great first discussion. Thanks for being on for week one and certainly look forward to having you back here next week for week number two. Can't wait so thanks for listening to today's episode of the charlotte angel connection hopefully you enjoyed learning more about uh, learning more about curtis uh, bova metrics um, the difference in startup environments from 2001 to today and just a general conversation with another startup founder here in charlotte so next week we're going to pivot a little bit we're going to talk about um just being an entrepreneur in general we're going to talk about some things specific to charlotte We'll dive a little bit further into boba metrics to see if we can't get some further insight as far as where they're going and how they want to develop over the course of the next couple of years so uh, fun conversation next week as part of our follow-up here um, and then soon thereafter so next week we'll have you know part two with curtis and the following week we'll start a two-part interview with an angel investor here in town Who I'm excited about, we'll announce next week once we get that um, episode fully recorded, and um, and take it from there. But thanks so much for listening to this week's edition or this week's podcast of the Charlotte Angel Connection.
2: William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.